Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Welcome to Wood Talk number 159 for December 2nd, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about squaring up large pieces of ply, block planes for specific tasks, making a conductor's baton, rustic furniture advice, fine dust collection at the table saw, and fixing cracks on a live edge slab. But before we get to all that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. I'll tell you what else today's show is supported by is this cup of coffee right now. Mm, yeah, it's keeping you going, buddy. I can tell. I need that That's caffeine. kind of precarious. Like yeah. Tip over. Is it a wide cup? You know, it's a woodworkers fighting cancer mug. And uh, those are actually available, by the way, in the TWW store. And the proceeds all go to the charity, which is pretty cool. Sweet. I'm going to head over there right now and take a look at them. Yeah. You guys talk amongst yourselves. It's good stuff. And you know what? Actually, that brings up a great point. We mentioned it a long time ago, but never mentioned it again. Speaking of of stuff that's in the Wood Whisperer store, we have t-shirts. So if you're a fan of Wood Talk and you want to help support us, it always helps to buy a t-shirt. And you get to walk around looking cool wearing your, I don't know what color blue it is. It's a darker blue color with a lighter blue logo. So it's kind of it's kind of subtle, but it's a nice looking shirt. Let me um, tell you something. I get the most compliments when I walk around with that shirt on. They're just like, I love your wood. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Why, thank you so much. Thank you um, very much. Yeah, you should buy one and then... Working American. Ask Mark why he didn't bring his to Woodworking American. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did mess that up. I don't know why. Uh, why I did that? But we're gonna have a Wood Talk get together. I think I'll bring Tom's working <laughs> shirt. Exactly. <laughs> That's, I'm just trying to support my friends. Um, you know, the thing is about the the shirts too. Um, I've got a good connection for getting shirts printed, so they're really high quality. But unlike a lot of you know folks like podcasters and stuff, they have to charge like twenty two dollars, twenty four dollars for a simple T shirt. We we don't do that. Our shirts are fifty. So if you want to get on that, they're available now at TWWstore.com. Just go into the apparel section and you'll see some Wood Talk shirts there. I can speak to that. That's like crazy cheap and they are really good quality. Yeah. yeah. I kind of hate you for that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same way. In fact, I want to thank the one person that did just purchase a Matt's Basement Workshop as we're recording today. Uh, I know it cost you uh, $45 and of which I'll get $2 (laughs) in profit. (laughs) That sounds like a great deal for everybody, Matt. (laughs) Well, you know what? You guys need to talk to me because I could probably get you set up. Um, No reason to overpay for t-shirts. Okay. Well, let's get to the good stuff. How about what's on the bench? We just talk about that now. I'm sure the audience would love it. Yes, they would. Um, (laughs) That's always informative for the audience. Uh, So what's on the bench? I'll go first. I cut myself and it hurt. Uh Uh-oh. Now are we talking just a paper cut or a full-on? A half-inch mortising chisel cut. Oh. Is it a through cut? uh, Yeah. We've talked about this uh, before, about how sharp those Lee Nielsen uh, mortising chisels can be. And not just the tip of the chisel, but the the outside edges. Now, fortunately, this wasn't one of those on the outside corners. This was actually... Did I just say fortunately? I was going to say, where (laughs) are you going with that? Yeah, this might be backwards. Well, actually, I find the the slices from the, the sharp corners hurt so much more because they're like a paper a paper cut times a thousand um and it's usually a long slow cut if you get hit with the tip of the chisel the 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 business end it is deeper and more severe but it's quicker so it, it like didn't hurt as much and it was in fact like one of those cuts as a woodworker if you've been cut enough times you go i know the exact severity of this and it's not even bleeding yet but i'm gonna head into the house just to make sure i get a paper towel because i know this thing's gonna be gushing blood pretty soon 
Yeah, they're, yeah. they're usually so clean. It's like that really <laughs> slow seep. You know, but you're right. Trouble, as soon as yeah. it goes, it's just it goes. Yeah. So so it was basically like, here's the situation. So I can turn this around into something useful for, for people. Hopefully, um, I usually if I'm going to hurt myself, it's typically on something that is not even a, an important project. It's usually like an odd job, something stupid. So do you guys remember about a, maybe a couple months ago where I had to break the crib to get uh, Mateo's arm out of the crib? We were um, yeah. just talking about that the other night. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, so out of nowhere, you ever have that moment where you just start laughing at something and people look at you and I'm like, it's a great story. My friend and his, and then break, and then his wife's like, what? Yeah, had to be there. Uh, but this this is a, a decent crib, so I wanted to at least get it into some sort of repaired condition because a friend of ours is having a, an, another kid and we wanted to give them the crib. So I wanted to make sure that that slat was secured. So I needed to clean out this ripped out mortise a little bit, and I was just kind of, it's an awkward piece because it's a crib side so there like it just wasn't perfectly uh, it wasn't the perfect situation i rushed it i didn't clamp it down and i did have my hand off to the side of the work like i know enough not to have my hand behind the chisel like in the line of fire but what happened was as i pushed and i was just doing little pairing strokes the chisel just kind of went off to the side uh and got the top end like the meat behind your thumb that part right there and just did a nice little slice so you know, it's well, bad least, when you kind of, at least it's a clean one. Those are ones that you can easily maybe put back together with a little super glue. See, it's and that's really the thing. jagged, scary ones. Yeah. That that's what I'm like. Me out. Thankfully, the, the chisel was so damn sharp that it was like a surgical knife cut. And all I did was uh, put a little, uh, cleaned it up, got some antibiotic ointment on there, put a nice tight bandage on it. And this thing healed up like perfectly. And just that night I was able to take the bandage off, let it breathe. And it was fine. So, you know, Lee Nielsen chisels, if you're going to get cut, <laughs> make it a Lee Nielsen. <laughs> make it a Lee Nielsen. <laughs> you know, do you think they would uh, take that as like an advertising uh, campaign with us? That would be great. Well, well, let's go ahead and just clip this part. Maybe we can send it to them. <laughs> if you got to we'll get cut, get go. cut by Lee Nielsen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I, I have like a little skin tag on my pinky where I think, well, I don't know when it happened, but there was definitely some chisel work going on too. And there's that part of me that's like, did I just like just just nick it enough that it didn't break through like yours? But it is the cleanest looking skin tag I think I've ever had. <laughs> That's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> and let's move on. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, <laughs> <laughs> All right? How about uh, what's going on with you, Matt? Besides your skin tag? <laughs> well, the skin tag actually came when I was working on a project this weekend, which I had posted, I think, on Facebook or something, where I had mentioned, you know. Uh, it's amazing how much progress I can make when I don't have the camera on me mm-hmm. or I'm running around trying not to get the camera in position mm-hmm. to, uh, to do anything. And that's exactly what, what ended up happening this weekend. I, I had this project that I've been putting off for a long time now, and this is actually like a quote-unquote commission, which means uh, Sam told me I have to do this for a friend at cost. So <laughs> it's exactly what I did, and it's, it's at my, my cost. Well, not really my cost, just the wood itself. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing it. But the neat thing is, you know, with the, the tapers on Aiden's bed, I said, you know, I did those freehand. I didn't have any jigs. Well, with this one, you ever, like, I don't know, maybe it's me. I'm just really dumb this way. Uh, as I was designing this valence, so this is just a, a, a piece that's going to go between two cabinets and a bathroom right above uh, their sinks, basically. It's just a decorative piece. It doesn't really have any functionality or anything to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I said, well, how do you want this to look? And they were kind of giving me ideas. And I made the mistake first of saying, well, Originally, it was just going to be a rectangle with like two panels, so nice frame and panel. 
And I said, you know what would look really cool is if we kind of put like an arch in that. And the second that came out of my mouth, I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Don't. <laughs> you have to make an arch along 81 inches and have it be, you know, perfect. And I don't have a template. I could make the template, but of course I put things off to the last minute. So I ended up freehanding the, uh, the arch itself. And then I had to freehand the panels that were going to fit into it just because they were really odd shaped kind of a thing. And, Holy cats, it worked. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. And there was a little bit of cussing and swearing, which is probably where that skin tag came from because I had to make some minor adjustments once I was trying to get them to fit in position. But it was literally just a matter of just kind of coming with a block plane and occasionally with a chisel to remove a little bit of material on the backside to try and get it to fit just the right way into the, uh, into the slot of mm-hmm. the, uh, the actual frame itself. And I was so excited when I got done with it. Again, I wish I had a camera on just to even have caught moments of it. But I went running upstairs with the completed piece, which is funny, seeing me come up the stairs with an 81-inch long piece <laughs> and not nail a wall on the way up. Right. And I held it up and I showed Samantha and I go, look at this. She goes, it's beautiful. I said, I know, but I freehanded this down here. She goes, it means nothing to me. <laughs> you don't Hurry understand, woman. <laughs> <laughs> So I had, to, I had to pick it back Get to work, monkey boy. Yeah. Well, she was more worried because we were at that point uh, 20 minutes from leaving and I still had to yet come up and, and take a shower so that I could look presentable at a, 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 a mustache Movember party. So uh, but anyways, that was my fun. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. Sweet. Now, how about you, Shannon? Something about hooker. Oh, you know, trying out whoa, hey, tools hey, on a bowl. You know, the minute I wrote that into the show notes, I knew that somehow Matt was going to fit Hooker into that. <laughs> oh, Matt. Always <laughs> well, a I Matt. like TJ Hooker. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Uh, yes, I, um, I've been trying out some hook tools uh, on my pole lathe. And I can't remember. I, I don't know when it was. It was some episode ago. We were talking about um, – actually, I think this was at Woodworking America. We were talking about if you were to – like dedicate some time and just kind of follow one of your rabbit holes mm-hmm. and and really go after it. And I kind of have been doing that. Um, anybody who looks at my blog uh, on a regular basis has known it's been a little bit quiet. I usually try to post about three to four times a week, and it's been maybe once a week, if that, for the last month or so. And it's because I've I've, I've been turning and trying to kind of reteach myself how to turn. Uh, I've kind of faked my way through it for many, many years and never really, you know, bought books or looked at DVDs. I just kind of went in and, you know, <laughs> threw chisels at wood and saw what happened. <laughs> and, uh, you know, definitely there was some technique that was lacking. And I, I went back and did some research and really just put a lot of time at the lathe. And, and I'm having a lot of fun. I got to admit, I, you know, anytime that I've kind of talked about turning the past and eh, I'm not real, can't see myself becoming one of those wood turners dedicated. I still don't think that because I like building furniture, but it's been, it's been really, really fun. You know, it's that sense of accomplishment when you suddenly things kind of start to click and mm-hmm. you're like, okay, now I'm starting to get this and you can get some consistency every time I step up to the lathe. And it's been it's been um, a great deal of fun because I've been doing it on the lathes that I built myself. So there's that little added extra um, pat yourself on the back. Well, I say all that to say this. I started trying out these hook tools and I was right back at square one. Uh, nice. <laughs> it's like, okay, I know nothing and I'm a moron and I'm going to go cry now. <laughs> it was uh, 
you know, it's a, supposedly the hook tool is really the way to do ball turning on a pole lathe because you're dealing with a reciprocal motion, you're dealing with a very slow RPM. It's it's the way to do it, and I can definitely see that having tried to turn a bowl using traditional tools on a pole lathe, it didn't go real well. I ended up making kind of a mess. So I was like, okay, let's do this, and um, I got some of these tools from a guy over in Great Britain, and um, they're very very cool. Very well done. I made my own handles for them and everything. And I can definitely see how it makes a difference. But man, it's a totally different type of tool. Mm-hmm. You talk about rubbing the bevel with traditional tools. I don't even know where the bevel is on these things. <laughs> so it's um, so it just kind of underscores the fact that you never stop learning in woodworking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you think you figured it out, you throw a new tool into the mix and you're right back at square one. So it, it's That seems to happen a lot to me too. Like you, you get to a point where it's like, all right, I, I think I'm ready to jump into this thing, whatever it is. It's a, either a new tool or even just a different technique. And then you realize just how deep that rabbit hole goes. And you're like, whoa, again, I could spend the next year focused on this one thing and still not be great at it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's been really been kind of good at the same time because, you know, you, you work long enough and you start to stop worrying about certain things. You, you see this a lot in forums and from new woodworkers. They're really worried about making that first cut because, you know, they spend a lot of money on this lumber. <laughs> they don't want to screw up this lumber. Or they don't want to uh, grind this tool because I don't want to screw up that tool. And mm-hmm. you kind of stop worrying about those things over time because you're like, eh, you know, I can fix a mistake on that piece of wood or, you know, I can go get another piece of wood if necessary if it's not too incredibly unique. And uh, you just learn to, to fix those things. And when you're suddenly kind of thrust back into, you know, square one again, you start to worry about stuff again. <laughs> you doubt and yourself. You worry about taking that next cut. You know, I've put in, – and in my case, when I put a, a, a bowl blank on the pole lay, there's quite a bit of prep work that went into that blank just to round it down and get it – you know, kind of bowl looking with the axe sure. and you don't want to screw it up. So then you find yourself, you know, you, you make like one tiny little cut and it doesn't go right. So then you like take a step back and you start reading something and you look at something and you find yourself suddenly on YouTube. You're like, Oh God, this is not good. Then it's all over. <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty much. So it, it, it's been good for me to, to experience the, the, the noob and kind of paralysis by analysis thing all over again because mm-hmm. I, I admit I've gotten away from that a little bit. I've gotten kind of comfortable. So um, yeah, humbling yet somewhat exciting a uh, couple of weeks for me. Cool. You know, that's yeah. the one thing I love about having the two of you around is that you guys are willing to take those steps that I usually sit back and just go, idiot. <laughs> well, believe me, right now I'm thinking, I can't wait to build some furniture. I can't wait to like cut some mortises and, and dovetails. That'll yeah, be awesome. Just stuff you know how to do, you know how to fix if something goes wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Predictable yeah, pretty stuff. Pretty much. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's jump into what's new. Got a couple of things here to share with you. First of all, Weekend Warrior Magazine. We mentioned this a couple episodes ago. Uh, James, a uh, good guy from the forum, just wanted to start a online woodworking magazine and the first issue is out and um, hopefully he doesn't mind us saying it because I know he was saying he was going to release it tomorrow but then opened it up today. Uh, So if you go to weekendwarriorwoodworking.com you should be able to get the issue. You could either view it online in your browser or I believe you can also download a PDF but if you do the online version I, I recommend giving that a try. It might be a little uncomfortable at first just because it's a new interface but try it because there's a lot of interactive features uh, pictures that actually work like a slideshow. So, you know, it looks like a magazine layout, but instead of that picture being static, it actually changes and cycles into other pictures showing you different parts of the the process. Uh, 
So I didn't get a chance to read through the entire thing, but from what I saw, I was pretty impressed. It looked really good. Uh, It's definitely something worth checking out because it's not going to cost you anything and you just go to the website and you could look at it. So uh, pretty cool stuff. Did you guys get a chance to look at this at all today? No, I haven't yet, but it's it's on my list for tonight, like when I finally wind down. Mm -hmm. Nope. Yeah, good stuff. So check it out. Uh, The other thing is I'd like to mention on Tom's Workbench, tomsworkbench.com. He's doing his last minute elf thing this week from December 1st to the 7th. And basically just keep going back to the site every day. He's going to have new ideas from uh, other woodworkers as well. But um, ideas for quick last minute gifts that, you know, maybe for starting your your Christmas gifts uh, next week. You can you can have some ideas here. Um, so small, basic things that are quick and easy to build, just kind of inspiring you if you are looking to make holiday gifts for people this year. It would actually probably work out best for me if he had a purchase link on there so I could just purchase them from whoever is going to be suggesting it so I don't have to do it. That's going to be a perfect last minute. Well, thing. if you go like, you know, it doesn't count. Like if you know you could have made it, doesn't it still count? Like if, even if someone else made it? Like I mentioned previously, if I give the person the gift card that would purchase the item and just give it back to me, we'll we'll go ahead and take care of that at a later time. (laughs) There you go. I think I'm going to do an article about a completely botched bowl blank that was thrown across the shop by a certain woodworker. (laughs) There you go. Here's your last minute elf. (laughs) (laughs) It's a one of a kind. (laughs) Um, So this wood welding thing, who who put that one in there? Yeah, I put this one in. Uh, I'm trying to think of who sent this to us. It was uh, uh, an Eric sent this to us. And And this is really now, I don't know if you guys had a chance to check this out. It's linear friction welding of wood. So I was just heading over to the video one more time to kind of remind myself exactly what this is and apparently there is a welding technique which is literally just that it, it, it's friction welding so they they get this really high speed vibration going on and they can weld pieces of metal together apparently the friction gets hot enough that it will just kind of act very much like a welding thing well they tried it on wood and apparently it worked mm-hmm. and of course this isn't going to be something I, I don't think I don't know how many people typically at home would be doing something like this I <laughs> I don't see me doing it at this point. I don't have the equipment, nor do I have the guts to do something like this. But the idea that the you could rub it together so tightly that the the fibers actually kind of they I don't fuse. know the way it looks to me is yeah they fuse they they interact with each other. And the funny thing is, when I first looked at this, I thought it was some sort of like ice cream sandwich. To be quite honest with you, because <laughs> there's these neat little fibers sticking out. But yeah, you know, I actually ran out to the shop. I rubbed two boards together, and I could not get them to stick together. <laughs> it just didn't work. I just made fire. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I think this is BS. I can barely get it to happen when I try to do like friction with uh, uh, glue in there. You ever you, you do the, like the friction fitting to try and get it to stay in place? I know oh, yeah. certain individuals that use hide glue say they can do that all the time. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. It actually, this joint, Matt. Jeez. I'd be curious yeah. to know what the what the application for something like this would be. But it was really cool. I mean, they show the process, and you can't even really see the vibration. It's so you know so so small. Um, at such a high frequency and it just, they just kind of start to melt together. And like you said, you get the little like wood sprigs of burnt wood. It looks like the thing's about to go up in flames and that's just when they stop it. And then it's fused together like a single block of wood. Well, that's what, because I was thinking the same thing with the application. I'm like, how would you put together a regular joint for this? Okay. Maybe, maybe a wide panel. I can almost kind of see that. That would be an interesting machine, but like there's no other real application that I can think of at this point other than the fact that it's cool. 
That's about it. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're make if they can somehow do it on a larger space, a larger uh, like maybe a, a piece of plywood. Because the 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 thing that I heard mentioned, I didn't listen to the entire thing, but they were talking about not having to use dangerous uh, chemical adhesives. And I'm thinking, okay, well, where would that be an issue? Well, some man-made sheet goods, uh, that might be an issue if you wanted to have a completely green product. But I don't right. know, practical-wise, like, can you actually get that to work on a 4 by 8 sheet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Use those pieces that. together? I'm not so sure you can. It's like, it's, it's kind of diminishing returns. You spend several million dollars on the machinery to <laughs> it make works. it work. You know? <laughs> hmm. Isn't there a glue called wood weld? Maybe you should just buy that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, Look, I made you a pencil box out of this wood. I I didn't use any glue at all. Oh, by the way, it's going to cost you $14 million. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> cool. All right, let's go into our kickback. We got a little message here from Dr. Nick. You want to read that, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Nick says, when discussing the issue of clogged chip breakers, Shannon used the word flexure in reference to the bendiness of old <laughs> plane blades, then wondered if it was a real word. It is, in fact, <laughs> in my world, it refers to two areas of the human colon, Specifically, the bends in the area, the liver, the hepatic flexure, and the spleen, the splenic flexure. So in a single episode, you managed to be both intentionally, quote-unquote, dilute with DNA, and unintentionally scatological. Whoops. Regarding the issue of wearing a dust mask after making cuts, Matt refers, referred to getting fine dust in the lung sac areas, the various aviolarices. The correct anatomical term is thoracic windbag thingamahoppers. I thought that sounded familiar, but I didn't want to go in that direction because <laughs> yeah. I, I got that mixed up with a certain male anatomical part, too. <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, Dr. Nick goes on to say, which I believe is derived from the original description by Andre Versailles in his classic 1543 text, The Human Corporis Fabrica Liberum Septum, which is Latin for Atlas of Gross Squishy Things That Zombies Like to Eat. Nice. I like that. Thank you, Dr. Nick. You could always count on a room full of woodworkers to get medical terminology right. <laughs> That's right. You know? I just love that we consistently give the kickback that with hard to pronounce words to Matt every time. <laughs> yeah, that is intentional. So um, enjoy well, that. We'll, Matt. we'll just have to cash out that one later on. <laughs> cash it. We're going to cash it. A <laughs> uh, little inside joke that makes no sense to anybody. Uh, okay, let's move on to our voicemail because we actually have one today. And this one's from Chris with a K. Hey guys, Chris with a K calling from New Jersey have a question about complementary curves, and that's complementary with an E, not complementary with an I, as in nice curves, baby, but with an E, as in matching curves or nesting curves. Uh, so my question is whether you guys have uh, tried this and found a method that works well. I've tried the Carol Reed approach with a router and a three-quarter inch bearing. Uh, but I haven't had any success with that. I'm getting gaps, tried it twice, got gaps in the same spots. So uh, that doesn't seem to be working for me. I'm working, by the way, on a fairly tight S-curve, something about 16 inches long in total, and uh, where the curves get a little bit tight, that's where I wind up with gaps using the Carol Reed method. Uh, so the question, the second question is whether you've tried that method and had any success for it, with it. Uh, the third question relates to an alternative method, which Carol Kobeman, I think it's pronounced, uh, from Fine Woodworking recommended. And her method involves uh, using a flexible piece and some blocks of wood to sort of create a template. 
pretty clever approach, and I'm thinking about doing that, but I'm not quite sure what to use for the material that would be flexible enough uh, to fit inside the S-curve, but also sturdy enough to hold up to a router bearing and not flex any. Uh, so if you have any thoughts on that, I would appreciate it. Thanks for a great show, and look forward to your responses. Take care. Bye. All right. I think it's a great question. Making complementary curves or matching curves is one of those things that just, it it's harder than you think it should be. Mm-hmm. Like when you yeah. think about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have, in case anyone's not clear on this, let's say you've got a plywood tabletop with a nice S curve in it and you want to hide the plywood edge. So you have some solid material. How do you get that material to be perfectly matched up? You know, or maybe you're just coming up with some weird design where you have to have a, a positive and negative that just come together perfectly in this curve. So how do you get those things to match up perfectly? And it's it's actually much more difficult than than you might initially think, especially if you've been using a lot of templates and flush trim bits. You think, oh, this should be a piece of cake. Well, try it. Exactly. <laughs> it's just not as easy as it should be. So there's a few different methods out there. Now, I've never tried the one with a router, but I have heard folks having success with it where I don't know the details, but you basically use uh, flush trim bits or rabbiting bits, basically bits that are bearing guided. And you could sort of use your first curve to create the perfect negative of that curve. So then you now have two curves and each one, they oppose each other and they should be set up perfectly. That's the one he said he tried and he's got some gaps. So it's not really working out. The second method he mentioned is a, there's a fine woodworking video that shows it. Unfortunately, it's in their members only section, but if you do a search for matching curves, you will find it there. And uh, it's Carol Kobeman, I guess. And it's a, it's an interesting method that utilizes some uh, little blocks to assemble the curve. So basically you make, you bend this piece of board to the matching, to the curve that you want, your first curve, and then you just hot glue blocks behind it to support it and put it in place. And then you have another uh, flexible strip that you match up against that, and you essentially do the same thing on the other side with blocks, so that you're forcing these two pieces to be perfectly lined up. Um, it, but it's a ver- it's a real no frills way of doing it, and it just makes a lot of sense. Very simple. And uh, I honestly have done neither of these methods, so I can't give you any uh, direct advice on them. But after looking at uh, the video on fine woodworking, that's a great way to go. That looks like a really slick way uh, to get your curves to match up perfectly. Uh, the thing is, he's got a very tight S curve. So um, my suggestion might be if, if like a hardboard or a very thin MDF or something like that isn't really cutting it for you, what do you guys think about using something like a strip of maybe like a Formica material that's, you know, obviously not laminated to a surface yet. Um, something that's got some rigidity on its own, but will take a decent bend. Right. Do you think that would work? I don't really work with the stuff very often. I don't know how brittle that would be. Yeah. I use that as the edging itself. Use that to make the curve essentially. So you'd think of like a two inch wide strip that's maybe, uh, I don't know, 24 inches long. Um, if, if that would take enough of the curve to, to be the, the routing surface. Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't know how well that stuff bends. I but don't know. Even, but I, I think mean, that's I his, think I think what the the difficulty is is the com the compound bend. Yeah. I think it bends nicely in one direction. One direction, right? Then you bend but it when back. When you try to do an S curve, I Snap. think it's it's limited there. Yeah. Right. I mean that's mm. that's just I used a I put a, I don't know if it's Formica or whatever, some sort of laminate. I put that down on <clears throat> cabinets in my shop a long time ago. And it's pretty bendy stuff. Yeah. 
Um, but I couldn't imagine trying to do an S bend with it, at least one that was pretty tight. Yeah. All right. Well, if somebody has a suggestion for a very thin material that could be used that way, if you have access to bending poplar, which is something that I find very difficult to find. I remember uh, David Marks on Woodworks would mention bending poplar like it's something that everybody has access to. Right. And then you go to the lumber store, like, I'd like a couple pieces of bending poplar. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, We've got wiggle board and that's about it. Um, so yeah, if you can find this uh, very thin, uh, plywood called bending poplar, it, it basically has all the sheets oriented in the same direction so that the sheet of plywood actually will bend and, and, and probably will already be like, you know, potato chippy by the time you get it. Uh, but that will take quite a severe bend, uh, more than you might anticipate. So that might be an option if you can find it. Have other, either of you ever done any, um, intarsia? I haven't, no. No, um, no. I'm wondering if there's some techniques. I, I neither have I. It's always been one of those things that you see it in like the state fair, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. woodworking thing entered. But I wonder if there's some techniques from there that could be borrowed. Um, yeah, I guess because you're matching up a lot of curves. But I always thought that was a very forgiving process, so that if you're using, yeah. you know, you're making those scroll saw cuts, they're so tiny that if you take two pieces and separate them with a scroll saw blade, you essentially have. Um, air quotes here, matching curves right? because it's right. such a thin curve. <clears throat> um, but yeah, so yeah, I don't know if they do like a double bevel thing there either. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let us know if, if you try this other, the, the, the video that was mentioned in fine woodworking, if you try that, let us know how it works. Because to me, the next, the next time I need to do something like that, that's exactly what I'm going to do. It looks like a really slick way to do it. That doesn't take a whole lot in materials or tools to get the job done. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. at that now. That looks like that's very cool. It is. It's so simple. It's one of those like smack yourself in the head. Why didn't I think of that kind of concept? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So good stuff. Um, all right. Well, let's jump into our emails. I got one here from Dell. He says, "Ugh. well, I found out today that my homemade fence needs some tweaking because it wasn't clamped properly when the fence was on the far end. I now have two 24 inch by 24 inch pieces of supply that are not square. Do you have any idea how I can square these up? And if I don't already have two 90 degree sides, or are they destined for the wood pile? I hate to waste the wood, and I can cut the pieces to smaller dimension if I have to. All right, well, I put this in here because I think this is a fundamental problem that some people will have. You've got these big sheets of ply. How do you get that first square corner? Because if you're using your table saw for the cuts, it's not going to make it square. You need to get it square. And at 24 inches, that may exceed your not only your miter gauge, but also your uh, cross-cut sled. Some sleds aren't going to be able to take a 24-inch wide piece. So you need to put a square corner on it. What do you do? For me, the way I used to always do this before I got my uh, Festool MFT in the shop, uh, the way I would do this is by relying on a good quality square to lay out a good square line. And then I would have one of those uh, shop made guides for my circular saw that I could then drop onto my line and make the cut. Because the bottom line is if you, if you can draw the line and then you have this guide there, you could then cut to a line. You should be able to get that thing pretty darn close to perfectly square, at least enough for, um, for most cabinet work. And it it shouldn't be too, too hard to do, but you do need to have a good quality circular saw. And, uh, um, you don't necessarily even need the shop made guide. You probably can just use a clamping tool guide as well. One of those little, you guys know what I'm talking about with the little clampy deal on it. You can use one of those too, uh, but the circular saw ultimately I think is going to be the way to go. Um, You may even have to make a couple of cuts to get there. Sometimes you think you're lined up, you make the cut, and you compare it to your pencil line and you go, crap, I'm slightly off. Well, make a slight adjustment and go again. And then eventually you'll you'll get that 90 degree corner and then you can move back over to the table saw. 
looks sweet. Yeah, and if you don't have, maybe you don't trust your square, you don't have one that's big enough for the piece that you uh, mm-hmm. you want to cut, um, <clears throat> you can use uh, compass and dividers to lay out a perfectly square or 90-degree line. Oh, cool. um, it's kind of going back to high school geometry where you essentially assign a point along the flat edge. You, you've got one edge, and that, that's going to be your reference edge. Uh, you assign a point along there, and you strike an arc one direction, and the point of the compass in that arc, and strike another arc, and where they intersect, connect that point to the point on your reference line, and you've got a square line. And I know that's really hard to describe, um, but uh, my buddy Bob Rosieski does this on video in one of his podcasts when he makes one of those little wooden tri-squares. Um, so if you go to logancabinetshop.com, cabinet shoppy, S H O P P E, and look up his uh, tri-square video, he does, he walks through this little thing. He's talking about how do you build a square and know that it's square if you don't have a square. And he goes through that. It's one of those kind of old school geometry things, um, just using set of a compass dividers type thing, you can create a line that is perfectly 90 degrees to your edge. And nice. that way you can lay out that line and then use your, you know, uh, zero clearance jig circular saw method. Cool. That sounds good. Sweet. All right. Hey, we have an email that came in from Michael and Michael says, I have two Stanley block planes now with an adjustable mouth, a 16 and a half and one without a, a number 102. I'm also about to purchase the Veritas DX60 block plane. Apparently, Michael has a block plane issue right now. <laughs> Love me uh, some block I'm, planes. <laughs> I'm sure the DX60 will be my go-to block plane. However, is there any way you can suggest I set up the other two block planes for more specific tasks that would still make them worth keeping around? Hmm. Um, well, I always like to have extra tools that have sharp blades. So that's <laughs> going to say. I bet nice. It serves <laughs> the lazy. To it totally serves, yeah. serves the lazy woodworker to have multiple tools just ready to go. Exactly. That's why people have like, what, uh, 40,000 routers like uh, Diami or somebody. Right. Uh, but anyways, what, one of my first thoughts actually was having one of these. Again, we joke around about having the multiple ones, but you could almost have one that is like your that's like your junk one. You know how many times like you would maybe touch up a surface where there's glue or something where you really just don't want your good blade getting nicked up, something you don't mind sacrificing a little bit. Totally. That's where my first thought went to. And then also, uh, I know a lot of people, there's always the debate like, you know, oh, do you go low angle? Do you go standard angle? Uh, You can easily with just a, a a couple of passes on your bevel, you could create that low angle version to essentially be a standard block plane with the the type of uh, angle on it. I, to be honest, I don't know why you would have to use something like that. So I don't know. It's uh, again, one of those things just so you don't have to throw it out. I did some quick research. I know a lot of people don't believe I do that, but occasionally I do. <laughs> and I went over to uh, Lee Nielsen and I was kind of looking around at their block planes because they have a wide assortment of them. And I happen to notice that when it comes to their replaceable blades, they have a couple of different ones that maybe, you know, we might want to consider doing something like this. I don't know if these ones will fit in your plane. I think they do have them available for maybe uh, the older Stanleys, but something as simple as maybe like a toothed uh, block plane blade. Tooth blades are great for if you have like a really uh, stubborn area that you just really want to hog out a bunch of material. It does kind of help out with that. It removes it. It makes it easier to come back in, say, with a smoothing plane or 
maybe your nicer DX60 uh, block plane to kind of clean up some grain. I also noticed, and this is new to me, I haven't seen this one before, they have a 90-degree bevel block plane blade. So say you want to use your hmm. block plane now as a bit of a scraper. Yeah. Yeah, well, Lee Nielsen is happy to help you with that. Nifty. Yeah, so that's a couple that. of things I was thinking of. Um <clears throat> Really, well, other than that, I, I just I don't see why you'd want to let it go when you could have one at each end of the room. Yeah, well, what's he, he's going to have three, right? That's his dilemma. If he gets, yeah, this. he could, he can have one at the far end to the right, far <laughs> end to the left, and one in the middle. You will never ever have to go searching. Right. Nice. Well, maybe I, it's obvious, but you know, I've got a couple of block planes, and one of them is always set up to take a, a heavier cut, and another one's always set up to take a finer cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've got. Um, I know I, Veritas sells that little chamfer guide, and yes. I think that only works on their block planes, but uh. you could probably, I mean, we're woodworkers, right? You could probably easily fashion something like that out of wood and kind of uh, attach it to the sole, so you've always got a block plane set up to break edges, create specific you know, chamfers if you mm-hmm. wanted. That's another one I could think of, but... You know, you know it, it, another thing with the Lee Nielsen, what I was immediately thinking is I couldn't remember if it was the blade or the body of the plane itself, but they have that fly rod version. And there's that part oh, yeah. of that's like, how much fun do you want to have and set up maybe a, a rod of some sort with some really heavy grit paper and just go to town on that sole and make like a nice little <laughs> a little fly rod kind of a thing. I don't know. It just <laughs> if, if you're really bored and you want to play around with your thousands of block planes, <laughs> that right. might be something you want to consider. Nice. All right, Shannon, you're up. Uh, we got an email from Ben, and uh, I enjoyed this because it was kind of out of left field. We hadn't <laughs> never had a question like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, ben says, I was planning on making a conductor's baton for my brother this Christmas. I know that normally batons are fiberglass and are made to be able to take a beating, and from doing some research, there are apparently more complicated to make than one would initially think uh, due to balance, shape, and length. But I was hoping to make him one that he could pull out during concerts and leave beating his cheap one to death for his practice. So he wants to know what finish should he use. He wants to know if there's any wood movement issues um, that he should be concerned about. Um, and, uh, you know, will, will the finish provide that nice polish but also stand up to uh, the beating when he beats it against the podium? So um, maybe maybe little known, maybe not little known. But I have spent some time on the podium with baton in hand. I actually thought about pursuing a master's degree in conducting and then realized that I would never get employed ever <laughs> and needed to maybe rethink that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I have I have held the baton and lofted the baton uh, quite a few times in, in like practices and very low profile type gigs. So no one would have ever paid me to do such a thing. But I have also made them because um, I have quite a few friends who are conductors who are much better at it than I and actually get paid to do it. And the the key thing, first of all, he does mention in his original email he was looking at holly. He's on the right track there. Whatever you use, you want it to be lightly colored. If you use a dark wood, it will not be visible from the orchestra, and you will piss them off. It's just <laughs> it's one of those things you have to know. They will be on a union break for the rest of the performance because they won't be able to follow the baton. So it must be light colored. Um, holly can be – moves a lot. It can be pretty unstable, but I didn't – don't want to worry about it because you're talking about such a small amount of wood. I don't think it's going to be an issue. Um, you know, baton, you want it to come down to somewhat of a point. Obviously, you don't want to be able to impale anybody with it. Um, well, maybe. Toscanini, I think, was known for impaling his uh, 
concert master with the baton, <laughs> but that's a different issue. Um, it, it's going to be really, really thin. So you're not going to really have any problems with wood movement. If you end up with any slight warpage, it's not the end of the world because the baton does not have to be stock straight. That's not what it's for. It's not a reference tool. It's just to keep beat. So don't worry too much about the movement. As far as the finish, I would go with the penetrating finish, an oil finish. Um, I don't know what kind of conductor his brother is, but I didn't beat on my baton that much. There is the the tapping on the podium to get people's attention, but that it's that you're not beating it to death. It's not a so drumstick, is what actually, you're saying? Yeah, no, it's not a drumstick, not at all. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't really take that much abuse, and especially if you're making this to be kind of a showpiece, I think all it needs to do is stand up to the silk lining of the inside of his tuxedo jacket, and he should be okay. But uh, an oil finish is just something that is going to provide a nice luster. It's going to look really, really nice. It's only going to get shinier as he uses it and the oils from his hand get on it. Um, if you use like a film finish, there is a potential that it could scratch as he knocks it on a podium or for whatever, could crack, things like that. And then that's a lot harder to repair because mm. uh, that film finish, uh, you know, unless it's something like lacquer or shellac where successive coats burn into one another – um, you're going to have issues and those scratches or whatever will always be visible unless you sand back to bare wood. So just using an oil finish means that if he gives it a problem, he can just give it back to you and you can reapply the oil. Um, so if, if nothing else and you want to use, he does mention something about using two different woods. Maybe he's thinking a different one for the handle and kind of actually creating a joint between the holly uh, on the light part of the baton and the handle. Um, again, don't worry about the wood movement because you've got such a small amount here. And whatever you do, um, I want to see a picture of this thing when you're done. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I want to hear a recording of the first performance that it was used to conduct. Nice. I think Ben's uh, – uh, was it his brother here? Needs to uh, – I, I like the idea of the black baton because then the folks from the percussion area will start pelting him with uh, maybe mallets, say from the kettle drum or the xylophone. They'll just throw a drumstick at him and say, use this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At least we can see that. It's hickory. Oh, and right. by the way, have your brother make us a new one. <laughs> cool. All right. Let's move on to the next one. We got an email here from Tim. He says, I have a friend who wants a rustic set of furniture consisting of a coffee table and two end tables. He wanted to just use construction grade two by sixes and two by fours, especially since his inspiration was Anna White. I convinced him that eight quarter knotty alder was a better choice, uh, especially after I took him to the wood yard to show him the stock that they had in. Uh, he really wants big bolts everywhere, like carriage bolts, to lock in that rustic look. I found clavos. I didn't know what these things were. I, I, I always called them rustic nubs. <laughs> He's one of Thor's friends, right? <laughs> clavos. It sounds like a uh, STD. Um, <laughs> but it's those little tacks, basically, the large-headed tacks that you, you find. They look like... Um, oh, like upholstery tacks. Like, oh, but bigger. Like hand-hammered. Uh, they are meant to look like big bolts that are going through a piece of wood. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, it's a giant thumbtack, basically. Uh, he says, I think that those would work as a great alternative to bolts that are just decorative since I would build the tables and not rely on the hardware to be of any use structurally. Any thoughts on how to make it look rustic without overdoing it? I've heard of beating the wood with a chain and banging up the ends and edges. What about jointing one side and one edge for the glue up, but leaving the other side basically rough? Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Now, here's the thing. First of all, I say good on you for recommending the Naughty Alder, because although you can certainly make furniture at a construction grade 2x4s and 2x6s, I find that over time, 
that just doesn't hold up. No, <laughs> you know I mean? like, not. It ne- I mean, it always looks good for that picture. You want to take the picture and post it on a website and put it on Pinterest. Boom. I want to see what that thing looks like a year later because it might not look the same. Um, that wood just doesn't hold up well for furniture. So I don't want to put it down too much because I know a lot of folks can do a lot with it. And depending on your region, the material you have as a, uh, excuse me, as construction grade lumber may vary in quality and consistency, but at least the stuff that I have access to, I would not really want to build anything important out of it. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it doesn't matter where you are. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It all sucks. (laughs) Okay. Let them email you then. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm playing it safe. I'm playing it safe. Uh, Okay. So Naughty Alder, on the other hand, is especially if you're in a region and at least out West, I know Alder is incredibly inexpensive, but it's much more stable. It looks fantastic. It's got, instead of that yellowy look that you tend to get with Douglas fir and pine, uh, the Naughty Alder just has a nice brown, sort of light brown color to it. And with no other finish or anything like uh, any fancy stains on it, it just looks gorgeous. So you're bringing in a lot of the rustic look just by the material that you're using in the first place. Um, So if you just put a clear finish on it, you're going to be pleasantly surprised at how rustic it looks without doing anything to it. Now, how much you beat this thing up really depends on personal preference. I'm not really big into the faux finishes. I don't like to beat uh, furniture up any more than I do just by moving it around the shop. Uh, But if you needed to do that because that's what they really want, uh, then you could certainly do it. You can use the uh, the edge of a hammer. You could use the claw of a hammer. You can certainly use chains, um, nails. You could put those little, you know, to make it look like there's, um, you know, some sort of little beetle or something boring at the wood. You could put a bunch of little nail holes in clusters. There's, there's a lot of things you can do. But one thing that, that works great with alder is it tends to be blotch prone. So if you use a good dark stain on it, that also, just without doing anything else, will make that thing look rustic as hell. Uh, just because the way the color absorbs into the wood, especially the knotty stuff, it's going to look really rustic. So what I would do is probably do that on a couple pieces of scrap. Test it out. Take a look at it. See what it looks like. That may be rustic enough for for your friends so that you don't have to go through any of these you know crazy... Um, faux finishing methods to make it look older than it is. Uh, do that, put on your little rustic nubs, and I say call it done at that point. That's, again, very personal thing. I just don't like to, to artificially damage wood uh, before it needs to be. I think if he doesn't put any effort to clean up his tool marks, he'd be surprised. As you said, it's kind of a blotchy wood to begin with. Mm-hmm. He'd be surprised how much of that like pops out when he puts finish on. Yeah, stain just like sits right in those uh, unsanded or unscraped, unfinished pockets. So and and, and, you know, hell, hand saw the edges of it, you know, (laughs) and leave it rough. That'll come out. uh, That'll come out pretty dang rustic. Yeah, and you know what? Here's the other thing. Alder is a fairly soft material, so if you are using that in a household, the average household, um, that thing's going to probably get beat up to begin with and just let that be part of the character that gets built into it. Uh, unlike my green and green coffee table, which was not intended to look rustic, but my son insists that it has to has, have dents and cuts in the top. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially if it's going in a living room, a lot of times you will wind up denting it because Alder is a little bit of a, a softer wood. So um, actually that's why kids are perfect for doing any type of rusting. <laughs> yeah, work. There you go. There you go. I'll tell you what, I'll send you Mateo for a weekend. I'll give him a couple hammers. He'll take those with him, and boy, will that thing look rustic by the time he's done with it. Yeah. When you're picking up all your stuff, also <laughs> pick up a couple of hot wheels. You'll be all set. There you go. <laughs> all right, Matt. You, hey, well, we have this question from Kyle and Kyle says, I have a question about table saw dust collection. I sort of have a system for collecting large chips, 
but no fine dust. Mm. I'm only in a two-car garage, and I would like to hear your solution because my dad is getting mad about all of the dust. Thanks, guys. All right, so Kyle, I my when I read this, my first uh, thought was, I bet your uh, system for collecting large chips was a lot like my grandfather's, which was a box underneath the table saw, <laughs> and that was it. So it just simply fell down, and it was very similar to one that I had much earlier on. So when it comes to the fine dust, uh, th- there's probably a very good chance that you don't can't afford or don't have access to a dust collection system. So. My suggestion right out of the bat is just simply doing something like the typical box fan trick. Just take a nice box fan, put a – it doesn't even have to be a nice one. Just get a box fan, put a uh, furnace filter over the front side of it that's actually be sucking the air in, and just set that somewhere near the table saw when you're making cuts. You'll be amazed at how much cleaner the air actually will be, and your dad might actually like it because it will do a good job of actually sucking most of that fine dust, not all of it, but most of it, onto the filter itself. It's inexpensive. You can move it around quite easily, so if uh, somebody does want to claim one of those stalls, they can have it back rather easily. Other than that, again, you're maybe heading into something where you need to start looking at like a shop vac, and again, maybe uh, a hose that you can have somehow clamped onto the work surface to kind of grab the dust as it's coming up. Again, it's not going to trap all of it. It'll just simply help to minimize it. Mm-hmm. So that's those are the cheap and easy things I'm thinking here. Other than that, you know, you really would have to start thinking about a, a, whole, a whole room air cleaner or a, a larger dust collector of some sort, some something dedicated. And if there's one thing Matt knows, it's cheap and easy. That's right. That's that was that was my nickname in college. I remember when I when I like closed off all the holes in my contractor table saw, it was the most like ghetto fabulous thing I've ever seen. It was basically <laughs> yeah. scraps of plywood and velcro. Right. You oh, know yeah. that self-adhesive velcro strips mm-hmm. and it it was just like it was it was franken dust collection. It was oh there's a hole there. Let's stick a piece of velcro to this piece of plywood and just scab it on there. But you know what? It worked. Yeah. It worked because I did have a collection hose on the bottom and just kind of closing up those holes and providing a little bit of suction. You could even use a shop vac for that, I think, was yep. enough to get the air moving in the right direction. But yeah, there was nothing pretty about that at all. Well, and you know, to make Kyle feel a little bit better, not necessarily solve his problem, but to to make him feel like he's, he's not alone here, uh, as someone with a full dust collection system, a good quality saw and great duct work, I still have a problem with fine dust off of the yes. saw. It's not the dust collection system's problem. It's the saw design um, that it's very difficult to capture that fine dust. And and Matt, you have a saw stop. Now, saw We're stop. I going to say, Matt, you probably have the best system. For yeah. That, don't I you? mean, they're one of the few people who have done the dust, the dust guard on the top integrated into the system with dust collection where it is you know, at the festool level of right. dust collection from the table saw. No one else really does that. Right. But, you know, with that, it also depends on the type of cut. Like if I have a cut that's right near, say, the 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 pieces wide and are narrow enough that part of that blade guard is actually still kind of exposed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't it doesn't completely enclose itself on top of the wood. I don't know if that makes sense if I can get the visual right on that. Right. Uh, but it will still kind of eject the fine dust back up into my face okay. as it's going. But overall, though, for, for most pieces, as long as that blade guard is completely flush on the surface of the material that I'm cutting so it's wide enough, uh, yeah, oh, my gosh, the, the dust collection there is, is just like – 
it's insane. I can actually see things rather than having that little <laughs> dust cloud around me. Right. Yeah, I've seen that demonstrated at Woodcraft a couple times. It's just crazy. Pretty impressive. I mean, like my old Delta saw, I would have to clean off the the table between cuts just to keep from throwing off my next cut because there was so much dust on there. Yes. It's like a half an inch of dust that I had to clean off. It, it was yeah. terrible. It's nothing these you know other companies couldn't do if they wanted to. They just have to engineer it from you know from the design of the saw and, and make sure it's done properly. And as soon as dust collection becomes a priority to all these companies that's when we'll start seeing it yep right. absolutely cool well last question we've got here is from phil he has a quick question about fixing cracks in live edge slabs he says i'm building a commission conference table from an eight quarter slab of walnut that's 11 foot by three foot wow um there are a few monster splits at the ends as slabs this of this size tend to do I've used epoxy to fill cracks on other projects, and it's always worked fine, but have never used butterfly keys. I'm curious as to how these two methods measure up in terms of strength and longevity. The slab has been kiln-dried, so it should be relatively stable, and I'm contemplating going uh, the belt and suspenders route and just doing both. Uh, It would be good for me to learn a new technique, but I'm not sure a commissioned piece is the place to do it. So what do you think of the pros and cons of each method? Um, Well, I've done both. Um, not, I haven't done the butterfly key thing a lot, but I, I have to believe that in the end, the butterfly key is going to be stronger because you're mm-hmm. creating a mechanical joint mm-hmm. um, that also has some of the natural kind of hydroscopic tendencies of wood. It's going to move around and it's going to flex a little bit over time. Um, now, epoxy, there's so many different varieties of it, so it may depend on what you use. But the example that I always tell people is, you guys remember when Christopher Schwartz built that cherry uh, rubo, that little rubo out of a solid slab of cherry? Oh, yes. And Roy Underhill broke it at Woodworking in America? <laughs> yes, I have pictures of that. It snapped right on the epoxy line. Um, and epoxy, while it is gap filling, um, anything that, that fills gaps is, is just a little bit suspect for me. Um, it can provide kind of a brittle kind of cleavage plane right in there. That's right, Matt. I said cleavage. Hey, yo, thank you very much. (laughs) And and that's exactly what happened. Even though it filled the gap and it felt strong, the, the brittle nature of that epoxy just provides a perfect place for that wood to just cleave right off when you put too much pressure on it. Uh, now, I mean, he's talking about a table here that no one's going to be chopping mortises on. So I think that that's kind of an extreme example. But, you know, that that kind of illustrates how I think epoxy can be maybe less strong as just a good old-fashioned mechanical dovetailed butterfly key. Um, I, I know that there are some other marine epoxies that have a little bit more, uh, what was the word? Flexure? Flexure. Yes, 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 a little, little bit more flexion, flexure. <laughs> Um, similar to what you would find in your colon. Um, it, and, and that may be a better solution for you. But as far as the bling factor, I mean, if you're going to use a live edge slab like that, it's almost like George Nakashima has almost like built that into our vocabulary now that there needs to be some sort of butterfly spline. It's just a good opportunity to throw that little. <laughs> Even if there's cool not a crack factor. there, you need to make a crack so right, that you exactly. can put a butterfly, uh, little, little Dutchman type thing in there. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is when, when those, when, especially on those big slabs, when, when they're starting to, to crack at the ends, it doesn't necessarily mean at the point that you've got it, that it's done. Like over time, yeah. it will continue. It potentially will continue to crack. And I think that's, that's an interesting point with the epoxy is that, Will it will it be able to withstand the pressure? But like you said, nothing is better than a mechanical joint that says physically, no, you have to break this piece out of here 
you know, and it's it's basically the grain is going in the strongest direction. You have to to break that in order for this thing to separate any further. Yeah. So uh, no question in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, hands down, the the butterfly spline key, whatever you want to call it, yeah. is the winner. Cool. All right. Well, hey, do you guys know that you could leave us? <laughs> I like asking this every time. It's got to <laughs> drive people crazy. Do you guys know that in iTunes, you could leave a review for our show? I did. You know, you mention this every time and I don't believe you. <laughs> you just don't yeah. listen to me, Matt. That's the problem. But there is that too. Samantha says I have the same issue. Apparently you guys are on the same page. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to leave us a review in iTunes, you could just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt if that's jelly because jam don't shake like that. That is so true. I get those two mixed up until I hold the jar upside down. Right. Something right. like that. We'd like to thank Work With Wood, who had this to say. Great show. Lots of info and entertaining. Thanks, guys, for the many hours of listening pleasure on my drive to and from work. I just feel bad that the cars are spending more time out of the garage than in. And that's the way it should be, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's not what garages yeah. are there for. Seriously. Well, Kyle's going to agree with you. That's right. what driveways are for. Exactly. All right. Well, remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. And if you want to sort of sponsor us yourself, you can do that with a one-time or a recurring donation. Just go to WoodTalkShow.com. Look in the left-hand column, and you'll find a couple of links that will tell you exactly what you need to do to help support us in that way. And we certainly appreciate everyone's continued support. Um, how about you give them the contact info, Matt, and we'll get out of here. All right, folks, hey, do you have a comment, a question, or maybe a topic suggestion? Or you'd like to point out that while jam can't shake like jelly does, twerking will throw your back out in no time at all. Oh, yes. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is woodtalkonline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. Hey, and if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you will find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And feel free to leave random comments in much older episodes because, well, we'll never see them. So. No one pays attention. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, always keep your eye on the cleavage plane. Absolutely. <laughs> See ya. See ya. <laughs> Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.